Welcome everyone to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. My name is Finn Arne Jørgensen. I'm Dolly Jørgensen. And today we have with us Daniel Barber, who's Associate Professor in uh, the Weizmann School of Design at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and he's here to discuss his book, Modern Architecture and Climate, Design Before Air Conditioning, which came out with Princeton University Press in 2020. So we'll just give it over to you, Dan. Oh, great, okay. Uh, okay, sorry, uh, that, was, uh, that was great, thank you. Thank you so much, thanks, great to be here. Uh, thanks to all of you for, for joining. And, and I, I guess I, you know, I've had the pleasure of sitting in on a few of these and have appreciated uh, the, the conciseness of the presentation. Um, uh, and the room for discussion. So I aspire to that heartily myself and looking at the clock, um, uh, but really a pleasure to, to be here. And um, I, I am going to, I, I and I also really get the kind of, um, you know, small person in the corner of the screen thing, uh, yet uh, as an architectural uh, uh, scholar, uh, you know, I am going to show a number of slides and, and even more so it, given that the book is, is in effect sort of about um, images and media and uh, as, a, as a sort of mode of production of, of knowledge about the climate. Um, yeah, so if you'll forgive me, I'll do a little sort of uh, uh, share screen dance uh, and then we'll, we'll jump into that. Give me one, give me one second. I do have a slightly cumbersome way of going about this, so you'll have to bear with me for one second. So I just, yeah, I just, so again, I wanted to sort of briefly um, uh, uh, put the book on the table. So the, the Modern Architecture and Climate Design Before Air Conditioning, um, uh, again, published uh, now, now almost two years ago by Princeton University Press. Of course, time has collapsed, um, so uh, it doesn't matter uh, when and how and where anymore, I suppose. But in, in any event, um, uh, uh, published by Princeton University Press, and it, it wasn't, I, my, I have a previous book that was about solar houses in uh, the United States in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, and initially my dissertation was to be both of these projects, the kind of solar house story that's about letting the sun in and that this in effect, which is a sort of climatic uh, dy dynamic facade story as we'll see in a moment, that's in effect about keeping the sun out, right? And, and yet one took over, uh, that became the, the dissertation and first book and then this had been kind of sitting around. So, so in a funny way, this work has been kind of kicking around in my head for, for 18, 20 years or something like that, which, you know, is not that exceptional amongst historians, but nonetheless, um, uh, here we are. So, um, uh, so I want to just sort of, yeah, uh, uh, you know, talk, talk through the book for, again, yeah, just a few minutes and just to start with giving you a kind of sense of it, a few of the slides, um, you know, as a, it's, a, it's a physical object of much uh, delight. Um, uh, the images are quite rich. There's, uh, I think, 468 of them or something like that. I mean, it's an absurd number. And, and um, you know, maybe you can pry out some of my secrets of how to kind of get an editor to let you have more images, which was like a, a concerted strategy, right? I feel like we kind of ran a workshop in it in my, in my office as we were putting this together, um, but really focused on uh, the, the, yeah, the visual presentation of the material. Uh, and we'll see that as we go along. But I do want to get a few things on the table uh, in a bit more uh, precise detail. So, so this, the, what the book does is, is, in effect, a way to talk about it, a way to sort of enter into it. I'm going to give a, tell a quick sort of episode, and then I'm going to very quickly kind of march through the two parts of the book, and then I'll stop, and we'll, and we'll have a discussion. So um, uh, first of all, the, yeah, the sort of two buildings, the sort of comparative analysis, right? So in, in a sense, what I do is I ask a question, uh, and the kind of afters and befores become important, and we can come back to that. Um, but I ask a question of a sort of period right after World War II, right? And the kind of architectural trajectories 
uh, technological and let's say kind of socio-environmental and technological trajectories that become established uh, through the design of buildings. And one model that emerges is what we know as the kind of sealed office tower, right? And this is one of the first ones, whether it's the first or not, some people will discuss it, but uh, we've all been in these spaces, probably they've been hotel rooms, unfortunately, right? Where you can't open the window. Uh, we can just get a sense, this is an interior view of this building, right? Uh, you can just get a sense you do not open this window, right? You control everything through this interface of the heating, uh, ventilation and air conditioning unit, right? We're familiar with that, uh, with that experience. An incredibly fossil fuel intensive uh, model, right? Uh, supply chain, infrastructure, way of living, right? I mean, we're being conditioned by this space to sort of operate in the world with a certain set of thermal expectations and expectations around comfort and reliance on energy systems. And indeed, the architect of this building, I don't want to get too distracted by this, uh, but the, it's a great story that the architect of this building, uh, Pietro Belushki, an Italian immigrant, um, uh, uh, said that part of the project of building a sealed object that required energy throughput uh, was in order to sort of maximize the excess, the surplus in energy production that resulted from the end of the war effort, right? I mean, just as the war ends and Boeing in particular in the Northwest, this is in Portland, the aircraft industry more generally ramping down, so to speak, or somewhat, uh, anyway, that's a more complex story, but there's energy, there was some seemingly or prospectively uh, let's say, kind of energy to burn. And of course, much of that was was hydropower in this case. So not to burn, but one model, one model is represented here. And then, you know, and we know that this proliferates and I'm not gonna get into this too much, but we know that um, that the kind of sealed office tower becomes a kind of trope of, of, of modern architecture. Um, uh, but so the other model, oh boy, what did I do now? There we go. Oh, I did do something funny, see? <clears throat> okay, I'm sorry. Okay, here's a good one. The other model is is what is built around the same time. This is a this is a building in 1945. This is built in Brazil, and and you know of course I'm skipping everything, right? To kind of jump across time and space to uh, uh, propose this comparative structure, but it helps us just to kind of get into the details. Um, the other model is is a, the sort of model of the dynamic facade, right? And and it's a it's it's informed by the tropical climate, by the or well, let's say, let's not say that. Let's say it's informed by um, the emergence of, of a kind of knowledge production that begins to categorize climates and understand uh, how certain uh, zones of various names and, and sort of forms of organization uh, interact across, uh, across the globe and present specific architectural conditions, right? The climate becomes um, a sort of site of knowledge production for architecture insofar as it becomes consumed with sort of how to operate upon it and sort of you know see the, the indeed the the facade and the sort of precise mechanism of the dynamic shaded facade and I'll talk through that in a second uh, as a means to intersect to interface to kind of mediate right this relationship between the interior and the exterior so what I'm talking about here and, and I know we're not all architects by any stretch right but um this is a sectional drawing, right? And, and forgive me, some of you may know this material, you know, these basics, but uh, to the field, but uh, I'll talk through it anyway. I didn't mean that in a derogatory way to say basics, right? But just to put it on the table. Um, uh, as a sectional drawing, uh, what, what we're seeing is a kind of slice through, right? This facade right here, as if you're cutting through a cake, right? And so you see that there's this kind of window section 
that has a window that can be opened and closed, that has a sash that can be moved forward to allow air to circulate, that has these fixed veins that block the sun as it indicates at noon, but also a set of adjustable blinds. And we see a whole sort of proliferation of methods and, and, and styles and proposals to sort of uh, think about and reimagine relationships between interiors and exteriors with the facade as the medium of expression, right? And as you can see already, this is in a specific uh, arena. This is in Brazil in the 1930s and 40s um, as a kind of you know, counter story or, or um, a parallel story to the discussion of air conditioning. Sorry, I hope some of that ambient noise isn't too loud. Okay, so, so that's the first initial comparison, right? I mean, this sort of dynamic facade versus the sealed facade. And so we just kind of imagine those as the two trajectories that are emerging. And already you see that my, both my, my title, subtitle uh, designed before air conditioning is kind of a, you know, a, a, a fallacy in the sense that it's kind of designed alongside air conditioning, right? We're sort of watching these parallel developments. Uh, and even, and, and as well, as I was talking about sort of after the war and during the war, that there's these other sorts of um, reconsiderations of these temporal frameworks, right? As in, indeed a number of the strategies that we might look to in the past, and I'll just click through a few as I'm talking since I, I, we have the, the, the opportunity for the slides. Uh, that, that our recognition that these strategies that were uh, at play in the architecture of the not so distant past, um, uh, you know, 70 odd years ago, uh, are of interest again in terms of how we're modulating, of course, our, our experiential expectations, right? Because the shaded building, one thing we have to note, uh, and I'm at about 10 minutes, right? So I'm going to do about five more. So the shaded building, uh, we should note, right, vis-a-vis -vis the sealed curtain wall facade, um, the shaded building, um, you know, is not as cool, is not as temperature regulated, right? It's a much more partial system. It's a much more adaptive system. It's a, it's a system that's adaptive, not only in the sense of that sort of choreography, that that sectional diagram that we just looked at implies, right? That you kind of open something and then move something around uh, later in the day and uh, have these other sorts of opportunities for you know, bodily physiological engagement with that system. Uh, but it's sort of operational, right? Yeah, I mean, precisely on those terms of, of, of kind of allowing, uh, right, a, a sort of different sort of interactive engagement with that, with that uh, climate dynamism. Okay, trying to get through a few more things. Sorry, uh, I get lost in these different tracks and we can return, of course, to many of the questions. But some of you may have also noted, uh, if you've been able to attend to the, the titles as I've been jumping through things, we're looking at buildings for corporations, for insurance companies, for oil corporations in particular. Um, uh, here's one of the best of uh, best examples of that. Uh, we also have a sort of proliferation of embassies, which is to say that the shading, the shaded building uh, as a sort of type in, in the modern architecture of the post-war period in particular, immediate post-war period in particular, becomes a sort of type of building that, that's almost the kind of, let's say the avant-garde to, to abuse a trope of architectural historiography, um, a, a sort of avant-garde of a certain type of, um, uh, of, of globalized or internationalized interventionism, right? So whether that's in this kind of amazing occurrence that happens here, sorry, I realize I've been had my slide slightly off this whole time, uh, giving a little too much border. Uh, the, the kind of amazing historical occurrence that happens here, which is that this building, the British, British Petroleum House, the headquarters for British Petroleum in Lagos, Nigeria, opens on October 1st, 1960, the exact day of uh, the British government officially sort of, you know, receding from handing power over to the Nigerian government. On that same day, 
you know, British Petroleum kind of establishes its its kind of ornamental uh, uh, bulwark in in the nation's capital, and in the uh, or really in the uh, not so much in the nation's capital, but in the uh, distribution of oil and kind of knowledge about oil systems and uh, uh, extraction and and uh, you know the, the kind of decimation of the Niger Delta that proceeds through the 60s and 70s, kind of operating through uh, systems and ideas and technical trainings that, that go on in this building, right? So we kind of see these shaded systems uh, here in the case of, of petroleum, and then here in the case of um, uh, embassy buildings. And, and, and you know, quite frankly, and again, I'm, because I have to do this quickly, I get to say some things that might sign, sound sort of ridiculous, but you know, the evidence is there, but uh, you know, the sort of proliferation of these sort of shaded screens for, um, for embassy buildings that was uh, a part of a very explicit and uh, architecturally articulated project to insert uh, uh, facilities for clandestine activities of the CIA and other agencies throughout uh, Africa and the Middle East, right? I mean, again, this, this, we begin to kind of feel like we have tinfoil hats on and conspiracy conspiracy theories but of course um, uh, we we can some of this is traced in my book and it's referenced to, to sort of played out more more um, more directly so so it, it's in part to say that we begin to see that these facades are facades in the sense of also kind of masking a certain set of intentions and a certain sort of fallacies of the progressive potential of modern architecture as it's often construed uh, and rather understanding the kind of tight interconnection between modernism and, and colonialism, let's say, just put it on those terms as a means for another jumping off point. Okay. I have by my count two minutes. So I'm gonna um, do one more piece if that's okay. And, and, and hopefully the slides will have been worth it. Uh, so that's kind of in a sense, the first part of the book and uh, uh, which is kind of trying to uh, craft that uh, global uh, kind of network of knowledge around uh, shaded systems. The, uh, and that's referred to, that's the, that part is called the globalization of the international style. Um, uh, the second part of the book is the American acceleration and I sort of play off and, and make some comments that we kind of are, are somewhat true, which is that, you know, the kind of great acceleration that has been discussed in many uh, contexts was very much a, an engine of American consumer culture and very, uh, very strongly at least. And so there's a kind of sense at which the kind of uh, emergence of a type of building of the, that other trajectory, right, the fossil fuel dependent trajectory was also an American model dubbed global, right? I mean, kind of uh, viewed as international, quite literally in the in the literature, um, and 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 kind of seen to be the kind of uh, you know as as we see it today, the kind of expansion of of capitalism into its late capitalist postmodern manifestations and beyond through the kind of neoliberal architectures of the present. So so there's a way in which kind of establishing these models of of climate are also just kind of establishing models of, of this kind of socio-ecological relationship uh, written more broadly. Okay, but I'm cheating. And, and, and just to say then two quick things. Uh, the second half of the book looks at how this discourse is, let's say, technologized, right? Or sort of rendered into a legible and visual form uh, for architects by researchers as a kind of interface between uh, systems of knowledge in the sciences and engineering and the natural sciences, um, and, and again, kind of rendered legible for architects. And the, f the central figures here are these two Hungarian emigres, Victor and Alador Ogiai, who work at Princeton in the 40s and 50s with this strange device, uh, you know, diagrams such as this. And a lot of the book is concerned with the kind of visual language, a lot of this section uh, 
uh, the visual language that emerges, the sorts of tools that are used, its possibilities and limitations. Um, uh, you know, this sort of premise uh, already that the kind of knowledge will be described through visual language as a means to uh, almost kind of calibrate the architectural profession as a climatic apparatus, right, across the, in this case, American landscape. This is very much, again, a, a discourse of, of growth and of fossil fuel growth and expansion uh, across the American landscape, even though it's, it's kind of mediated, again, uh, as, a, as a kind of climatic development. Uh, so it's it's simply to say that this that this discourse becomes quite heavily mediated and and and, and you know rendered into these quite luscious images in various cases and um, as a means to help us understand a kind of a set of next steps and I'll and I'll close here um, uh, but images such as this that that show us both the kind of let's say technological dynamics right this is something that's referred to as a psychometric chart and we can go into details if you'd like in, in the discussion um, you know that does allow one to sort of place oneself relative to temperature and humidity, right, across a spectrum, a complex spectrum of, of experiential uh, readings. Um, and of course, we know today that different people and uh, across genders and time and space and origins and predilections and, and, and habitat and many other things, uh, physiology uh, fall in various places across this psychometric chart, across this kind of spectrum of comfort or this sort of field of, of experience. Uh, uh, however, in this discourse in the 50s, right, a lot of this was about identifying and producing through design, right, this sort of space of comfort. And, and the kind of twist at the end of the book is that this space of comfort, the comfort zone, as they call it, carefully kind of registered through architectural techniques becomes the space for uh, the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning industry as a kind of side of regulation, right? And so this comfort zone becomes produced through fossil fuels, conceptualized through these climatically dynamic design techniques uh, in terms of its conditions and its properties, and then sort of produced industrial, if you will, and globally through uh, fossil fueled HVAC systems and a set of regulatory mechanisms that sort of proliferate uh, around the world uh, to, of course, exacerbate and uh, in some sense kind of produce the climate crisis, right? So maybe I'll just end it there. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for your time. And yeah, I hope, uh, uh, I, hope I didn't talk too fast, basically. No, I don't think it was too fast. Um, <laughs> it was a whirlwind tour of, of mm. uh, these developments, but that's always how it is uh, with these talks. Um, yeah, so so one of the things that I was thinking as, as you were talking about this development of these shading systems versus the closed systems was that I uh, worked as an engineer in Houston. Mm, which, okay. Uh, for years. Um, and some of the, you know, in these kind of closed system buildings, that's, that's yep, what yep. they put into downtown yep. Houston. So what I'm Absolutely. wondering is the, the role of the, if you will, the eco tone that the, the place is in, because one would think that Houston should follow the same model as uh, Rio, uh, for example, yeah, because yeah, it's also, yeah, 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 you know, incredibly yeah. hot and humid, and you yeah. actually would like air to circulate in a different <laughs> way than, than what ends up yeah. happening, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so why yeah. is it then that places in the U.S. that are in that 
warm right. zone, don't right. go right. the shading way. Yeah, I mean, so 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 two answers and or two responses, two thoughts around that, and, and it's a great question. Um, and I think first, you know, I just also just love and I encourage others, like I mean, kind of one's own experience. I think is in many ways what this is. What I'm really interested in, in a sense, right? I mean, the work I'm doing now is a bit more, I mean, I don't want to abuse the term, but sort of ethnographic in terms of kind of thinking about the thermal conditions of how we experience space, right? So, and, and that's in part derived from the fact that talking about this stuff around the world, I hear good stories, right? And kind of, and people have memories of kind of thermal conditions, right? And their pleasure or, or, or lack thereof, their comfort or discomfort. And so, um, you know, part of, uh, part of it is to say that, uh, the challenge I'm trying to kind of outline for us uh, architecturally, but also kind of more broadly as, as you know, kind of citizens of the world is how to be comfortable with feeling less comfort, right? I mean, to kind of emerge ourselves in a challenge of, of, of shifting our expectations on those, uh, those, those situations. Um, Houston's a great, uh, a really interesting example, right? I mean, on the one hand, there's a lot, and there was one building that I flashed through that was from New Orleans. So, you know, we get some parallels and uh, there's a great, I, one of the projects I've been working on is um, looking at buildings for oil corporations that had shading systems, just almost out of that very simple irony of, or, or at least kind of play of, or a mis, um, a slight uh, kind of misconnect of, of kind of architectural and, and knowledge and corporate aspiration. Um, and one of them is in Houston, the Humble Building, which is actually now a Shell, uh, a Shell subsidiary headquarters um, uh, that has a great kind of shaded facade. Um, but it's also, that's also part of the story, right? I mean, um, the story of Houston through this period is in fact the you know, um, uh, as the term would be the creative destruction of its more uh, climatically adaptive habitats in the 50s and 60s uh, for the sort of corporate that's, you know, I like to think of them as corporate mega mansions, right? The kind of uh, air conditioned spaces of, of oil corporations and some great work has been done indeed on uh, the kind of uh, interactions between Philip Johnson and his circle and the kind of the oil corporations in Houston in particular and how that's kind of produced in some ways a very homogenous um, uh, air conditioned built environment in, in, in that realm. Uh, but, so, but Houston also has a lot of great invention and interventions going on. I mean, as with all sites uh, today, I mean, there's a lot, you know, especially coming out of Rice and the University of Houston, a lot of great discussions of sort of, yeah, how to live differently in those, in those environments as well, so. Uh, well, so the other thing that I was wondering about was these designs for the shaded systems, how much they are built for a specific user, as you were talking about this comfort zone. Uh, so I have an office and I can open the window uh, versus what I see as those kind of shaded systems now, like the building we work in, has automated you know, screen that comes down at particular hours of the day. And I, as user, have absolutely no control whatsoever on that shade coming down or not coming down, um, which is sometimes quite annoying because <laughs> you may actually want to see outside um, for other reasons than your climate. Um, so I was wondering about that tension between kind of, yeah, you know, yeah. remote control and, and actually user control. There's a lot of really great, um, uh, yeah, sort of discussions that are that are coming out along these terms these days. And this is one of them: the kind of mechanization question, right, and kind of automation question, and and, 
um, which is to, in part to say that, you know, the kind of, uh, let's just call it, you know, the technological trajectory of architectural sustainability, right? I mean, that kind of set of, of causes and effects and kind of resource logics and industrial supply chains, um, uh, you know, in, in, intensively, uh, intensively uh, uh, automation dependent, right? I mean, kind of the, the, the premise of mechanization doesn't even, you know, get as close. I mean, this is just, or part of the story, and and yet many of the, I mean, I, I alluded briefly in my in my talk to the, the the premise that many of the strategies that we see in these kind of shading mechanisms, in fact, are kind of coming back today and are kind of harkening back to even let's say kind of pre-modern or before uh, sort of architectural modernism, uh, you know, uh, interventions, which is to say customary or traditional practices. That there's a whole field of sort of uh, modes of, of of kind of operating and interacting. That are non-mechanical, right? That can allow for uh, various sorts of adaptation. And I actually recently wrote a an essay for uh, South Atlantic Quarterly, an essay uh, for a sort of group of essays on solarity that uh, Imra Zeman and uh, one of his colleagues had had edited, um, where I kind of tried to jostle this kind of active-passive dichotomy that plays out in architecture, which is to say that an active solar system is one that's kind of like mechanical, right? That's kind of electronic and engaged within the grid and sort of part of the, you know, it's kind of active in that sense of being economically vibrant in effect, right? And then the passive is a bunch of windows and then bricks on the floor to absorb the heat as the sun comes in, right? Or, um, uh, you know, or other sort of questions around thickness of materials or types of materials and orientations and, uh, yeah. and, and but what I try to articulate is that in fact, many of those so-called passive buildings are in fact quite active, right? You're getting up in the morning and you're opening the shades, you're, you're in this room at nighttime, you're in the other room, you know, for dinner, et cetera, et cetera. You're kind of moving yourself around according to the climate. You're often like fires or you're, I mean, depending on what sort of habits and, you know, sort of period we're talking about. Uh, so there's this much more active relationship, in fact, right? Rather than a passive relationship. So I think this question of, of, of automation um, uh, becomes really crucial because it, it helps us to kind of see how difficult it's, it is and is going to be um, to sort of break out of some of these logics, right? And, and I mean, one, we could, I won't do this because I'm talking too long already, but we could talk about this through the passive house, you know, which is a, a model that might be familiar to some of you um, that is about insulation rather than mechanization as a kind of set of industrial logics, right? And those challenges and, um, you know, and the sort of carbon dynamics of that, right? And, and so, um, you know, when we really start to think about how are we going to live in in buildings that are not carbon dependent? You know, these challenge the challenges just pop up like wildflowers. You know, so um, yeah. So just a reminder to people to let us know in the chat if you want to ask any questions uh, for Dan. Um, but meanwhile, then I was curious if you could say something more about the relationship between the the architects, you know, the people designing these mm. buildings and the the inhabitants and the users. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've seen when I've looked at Norwegian leisure cabins and architects, yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of, of the course, architects yeah. have very strong opinions about how their buildings should be used and what people should do in them. And of course, as we know from history of technology, people tend to I mean, not necessarily agree with those expectations. They want <laughs> do whatever they want. Yeah. 
and so and so it goes, of course, you know, over the history of a mm-hmm. of the life of a building. So could you share some yeah. some thoughts and examples there? Yeah, no, absolutely, and and I think that's a key question. And and I mean, I'll start with one kind of anecdote or or sort of episode from my first book, actually, um, on solar housing, and and. Um, there was a competition um, hosted by a group, a kind of NGO in Arizona in, in the late 1950s for a, a solar house, basically outside of Phoenix, you know, a place with a lot of sun, right? And a place with a lot of kind of solar lifestyle kind of claim, right? And industry, right? A kind of retirement industry based on the solar lifestyle. Um, and, and so the, in the brief uh, written by a consultant, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, the brief for the competition, sort of uh, encouraged the architect to design for a client, a family uh, that was, as they put it, adventurous enough, right? I mean, kind of willing to play along, right? I mean, kind of capable of, of interacting uh, with these different systems. And, and, and in fact, this proved to not be the case. And the, the sad story is that the building, the competition was successful, a building was built and it was meant to be a sort of display system, but because the um, owners uh, slash clients did not, um, maintain it, the whole system fell apart within a few months, right? So they weren't that adventuresome after all, but as you suggest, right? I mean, it's kind of uh, where these where these gaps occur. You know, there's all sorts of other stories of uh, across the history of solar energy and, and sort of climate practices of, you know, various adaptive mechanisms from relying on, you know, ovens for heating or, or uh, in fact, removing windows. And, and there's, a, there's a house designed by Lucan in Philadelphia where you have to take out the windows in the winter and, and, and put in insulation and then remove the insulation and put in, I mean, there's, you know, there's all sorts of ways in which buildings have post hoc been uh, reimagined. Um, but I think there's a bigger question that I wanna, I wanna get up for a second and it actually leads to the a project that I'm uh, sort of opening in, uh, working on, uh, on right now in different ways. Um, a framework that I've been using, the term I've been using is thermal practice, right? And, and, and to think both about a practice in the sense of our, an architectural firm uh, that is newly challenged to um, take uh, a, you know, a variety of climatic questions into account, right? And, and one of them being, uh, how does one produce thermal comfort without excessive or perhaps any carbon output, right? So, so that sort of question of thermal practice, like how do we reconceive architecture as a thermal practice, as this kind of thermal cultural practice might be. That's, I just came up with that. I might have to use that again. Um, uh, <laughs> so, um, uh, just let me, you know, let me write that down real fast. But um, uh, so, so that sense of practice. But then on the other hand, uh, kind of user practice, right? I mean, you know, as you're saying, what do you do in the building? And and this is a, this is. I mean, there's a you know there's a there's a field of this, right? I mean, post occupancy evaluation and 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 other sorts of ethnographic discussions that are maybe a bit less formalized, but. Uh, which is to say this is in some sense a kind of part of, of, of the history of, of building something already, um, but hasn't been a huge part of the discourse around, around sustainability. So I think uh, trying to, yeah, trying to get at that dynamic between what is the firm, what is the design project, you know, what are the kind of, again, almost a kind of ethnography of the firm in that, on that side of the equation, um, how are they conceiving of the tool uh, providing a, a context, right? A kind of milieu for engaging with thermal conditions in, a, in an effective way. And then how uh, indeed is the user, inhabitant, resident, you know, uh, uh, whatever the case, multi-species inhabitant interacting with it, right? And kind of what's at stake there. So, um, and how does one study that? I guess that's the question I'm trying to study that. What are the tools? What are the thermal 
sensors that one deploys? What are the kind of systems and softwares and, and what sort of postdocs does one hire? And how does one, uh, in effect, writing those grants as, as we speak? So. Yeah. Well, in, in thinking about then, th those are very technical questions of how um, the temperature then is regulated, how air is regulated. And Chris in the chat had an interesting uh, question. How important were discussions of aesthetics then in the debates between these two primary uh, choices between the sealed building and the dynamic building? Um, you know, did they enter, were they so different aesthetically that they were just in different conversations or did people say what the merits of one versus the other were on that kind of aesthetic level? Yeah, another great question. Thanks, thanks, Chris. And 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 there were some sort of debates, let's say, right? I mean, there were sort of, I mean, not quite debates, but sort of, you know, back and forth across journals and conferences and, you know, the types of things that one can excavate, kind of connecting the dots as are done in, in, in a few chapters in the book. Um, but I, I think I would I would play that with this example and you'll forgive me if I kind of assume we might all be able to either picture in our heads or Google um, the Bauhaus Dessau, one of the more famous buildings in the history of modern architecture. Um, uh, an amazing building and I, 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 I mean it no ill, um, but to think about, you know, to think about, which is in part to say, how, how we can see these kind of buildings that I'm interested in, in, in some sense, kind of architecture more generally in the, in the broad context of petroculture to, to, to bring that sort of term into its, into its use relative to my thermocultural intervention a second ago, uh, which is not just to say how has you know, energy lived in the world, right? But how has have questions of value and aesthetics and pleasure and comfort and, and experience and affect been informed, been been you know ex experienced as energetic cultures, as energetic conditions, as uh, and and you know the interesting thing about then speaking about that thermally, right? I mean, it becomes I mean, quite literally atmospheric. I mean, quite literally in the air, right? In in, in very specific ways. So, so I've written about the Bauhaus, uh, the building in Dessau, um, you know, built uh, designed by Gropius and his team in the, in the early twenties. Uh, just for the kind of renovations to the heating system, you know, it's it's one it's famous for its open workshop space, right? And if you haven't been able to Google it or picture it in your head, you know, there's a number of three stories. I should probably Google it myself. Uh, three or four stories of open uh, workshop space, teaching space, right? Wide spans, very thin curtain walls, um, lots of daylight, but very thin curtain walls. Let me say that again: very thin curtain walls. Which is to say, you're sitting in Germany in a place that gets cold and hot, right? Uh, with very little protection from the elements, and 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 in fact, uh, you know, period photographs of multiple coats and this sorts of thing are are, are evident, and um, you know, so various forms of ad various adaptations. But to try to think about, you know, I, I guess part of what I'm interested in is if we if we if we say that you know the Bauhaus was a, an aesthetic accomplishment of the. Uh, essential to the emergence of architectural modernism or something along those lines, right? And um, uh, it, it was so because of its capacity to uh, take advantage of the, uh, in effect oversupplies again or perceived oversupplies of fossil fuels. In this case, the kind of expansiveness of the coal uh, extraction regime uh, in, the, uh, in, in Germany uh, in the kind of aftermath of World War One that had, yeah, that had a similar kind of after effect of, of uh, apparent oversupply. And I'm being very delicate here because I know others perhaps in this call know these histories much better than I, but energy surplus is always a delicate thing. But but nonetheless, the, to see the Bauhaus and the Seagram's Tower and a number of other buildings that we can kind of mark as um, 
you know, icons in architectural modernism uh, to see them also as sort of moments of energy intensification, right? I mean, the Bauhaus is like, oh, wow, look what we can do with coal. We can build this super thin curtain wall and it makes this great space to interact between, you know, uh, pedagogically experiment and do all of these levelings of hierarchies, et cetera. This wide open space that gets all this light and we can do all this stuff and let's just keep feeding that boiler. And in fact, let's rebuild the boiler after two years. And let's, I think it was like 11 different boilers in the first 15 years or something. I mean, it's, it's excessive, right? It's, a, it's an extreme story because it's an experiment in how can we use energy to, you know, make our kind of architectural experiment. And, and again, I, you know, I could talk through the story of the Seagram's Tower. And, and in fact, even the kind of early sustainability projects as kind of, wow, how can we use these new technologies to, you know, they were not kind of very different carbon wise when we bring in embodied energies because they were so technologically intensive uh, uh, to produce, right? The kind of first rounds of high-tech sustainability buildings in the eighties. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm drifting into specialist discourses that might be harder to, 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 to bring across, but um, how, we can, how we can reimagine aesthetics, I guess is the point, right? Or how we can kind of uh, see buildings, see the history of architecture as an opportunity to think about the ways in which energy is part of our uh, kind of mode of valuation, right? Or kind of axiological framework, et cetera. I think it leads nicely actually into Greg's question, your example of the Bauhaus building um, and, mm. you know, oh, okay, it makes this big open spaces great for teaching because his question yeah, was, yeah, yeah. how did that design, that sealed building uh, versus say the shaded mm -hmm. building encourage or discourage you know, uh, those kind of open spaces, because I might yeah. have thought yeah. that the sealed building would lead to more division of space because you need to control the air conditioning and airflow of, you know, of, of single offices um, and that right, that would right. work better than, than large open spaces, but maybe that's wrong. Right. Well, but I think, no, I mean, again, it's exactly the point, right? It works better in the sense of being more energy efficient, right? And so it's it's another sort of piece of evidence that helps us to understand that what was at stake was energy profligacy, right? How much, I mean, you know, uh, the Seagram's Tower, uh, which we looked at very briefly, again, another thin curtain wall, the heating, the heating system is directly on the edge of the building. It's heating Manhattan, you know, heat comes out of the heater and exits the building, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's almost as if we, when we look at it today, I mean, part of what's so interesting, of course, too, is that in the historiography of architecture, it has not been looked at this way. And now we're just like, what the, huh? I mean, you know, it's just kind of, but wait, you know, when we look at it today, it almost seems like it's, it's kind of tongue in cheek, right? It's like, huh, look at how much energy we can expend. And I mean, it was, right? More, I mean, we know the logics of the American century, right? I mean, which I'm doing in serious scare quotes if anybody's not watching, right? I mean, you know, we're, let's, let's burn more energy because that's more economic activity and that's more American dominance and that's more, you know, established. I mean, again, I don't, I don't think, you know, we know these, these sort of how these stories resonate. Um, so to really understand again, yeah, the, the project was to, uh, in that sense, use as much energy as possible, right? And, which is we I could also just say suburb and and you know um, play that example out yet again right as, as a kind of project to you in a different way in terms of course of air conditioning but I think that um, I, but I think the question of of the experience of the interior is a is a super important one right and I think it's a question both about kind of the past and the future and and um, 
which is in part to say that, uh, and I didn't show this slide, but I have slides of some of the buildings in Brazil that we kind of uh, quickly ran through um, now, right? And those very delicate shading mechanisms that I celebrated have by and large been stripped off of those buildings with in-window air conditioning units stuck in. And, and which is in part to say that, you know, that it leads us to the kind of question of comfort, right? That, that this was not producing an experience of comfort that was, uh, you know, relatable to the kind of air conditioned spaces of, of late capitalism, if you will, right? And the kind of uh, ways, I mean, again, a lot of things start to kind of cascade or I don't know if it's quite a cascade or a kind of layers of onions, but uh, the relationship of these air conditioned spaces to the smooth flow of capital is, is almost too self-evident, right, to, to, to get too concerned about. So, so in, in some ways, what you're, what you're recognizing is that the kind of space that was produced in these sealed buildings was a space of consistency. Let's call it insurable, right? I mean, let's call it risk managed, right? I mean, a space in which we know, and, then, and that's quite direct in terms of like, you can use this type of sheetrock because we know it will stay at a certain humidity. Because if it varies too far from that humidity, mold this or or you know flaking that, et cetera. So you know this is a very tightly tuned again industrial supply chain and kind of technological trajectory uh, that allows for these careful experiences to to develop and and um, you know and 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 leads to so many great kind of stories and narratives and examples. I mean the opening of uh, Alan Wiseman's The World Without Us, a, a text that's had a great sort of popular uh, exposure, as I'm sure many of you know. Uh, in part, I'm in the part of the paragraph, but uh, you know the, the the sort of first phase of urban decay, if we imagine the disappearance of humans, is all of the sheetrock getting so moldy because the air conditioners break down. And of mold and and right and keeping them in balance. Uh, so that's what the sealed. Sorry, I guess I was just unstable again, but uh, just the point that we're constantly maintaining these fields and keeping them at a kind of optimal temperature, right? And that's that's a very carbon intensive place. So yeah. how to yeah, how to bring that into our values. Well, and so and so that leads me to ask about that kind of comfort zone, the standardization of the the comfort. Um, mm -hmm. and how in your looks at the the way these architects um designers thought about these buildings then i'm assuming that that comfort zone is always a middle-aged white man um mm. as the person who who's it's being designed for and i know from our own experience that our temperature our body temperatures are not the yeah, same yeah. um yeah. so so he he has a very different <laughs> regulated temperature than i do so um you know you debate about how much air or what cold air to have or warm air whatever um so so i was wondering how that enters into this architectural yeah. discourse and design yeah. as to who these inhabitants, particularly because a lot of your buildings you showed them um, with that um, shading style are not, uh, you know, the, they're not necessarily white men or are they? Because well, it's BP's yeah. building yeah. in yeah. Indonesia. Yeah. So therefore they're yeah. catering to the executives that are coming and not yeah. necessarily workers, yeah. for example. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that building had a really interesting kind of schizophrenia around that, which, which, uh, yeah, uh, uh, but it's true. That's often the case. Um, a couple of things to say, and then, and and this is really the stuff that I'm I'm so interested 
with these days in these days, these questions of comfort. And it, it, the first thing to say is just to, to kind of note that, that um, you know, there's a lot of an amazing kind of work on the side of architectural technology going on right now around these kind of questions of adaptive comfort and uh, systems that regulate to bodies rather than kind of, uh, you know, regulated norms, right? Kind of uh, legislated norms, other sorts of coded systems, um, uh, you know, questions about uh, radiation versus heating the air, right? That allow, allows it to be much more kind of adaptive. Uh, so there's, there's a, you know, it's, it oddly is framed as, uh, under this term of adaptive comfort, right? Um, which is to say precisely as, as Dolly was just noting, you know, different people feel comfortable in different contexts and, and on different terms. Uh, how to, um, uh, you know, sort of design in that sense for a kind of set of parameters, right, that allow people to interact with their spaces. And, and you know, a lot of the same questions come up, right? I mean, this one could say, well, this is what the Nest thermostat does, right? I mean, again, kind of not only mechanization um, and automation being the answer, but indeed sort of AI is the answer, right? Or some other form of, of, of potentially uh, collected uh, distributed knowledge. Um, uh, so there's that aspect of it, of a kind of mechanization of adaptive comfort, right? But there's also, as is being suggested, uh, you know, opening windows, um, taking off sweaters, right? I mean, other forms of adaptive comfort. And and a lot of the interesting discussions around this, and I'm, I'm working with some colleagues, in fact, to, to try to think about how to develop this question in a sense of the edge of comfort, as I like to think of it, into an exhibition. Um, I, I guess it's in part to say that this question of comfort, I think, will really be or is uh, uh, a space of contestation for the present and immediate future, right? I mean, it will be a space for where climate change uh, affects, where the inequities of, of climate disruptions will be played out, right? I mean, quite similar, quite similar to the pandemic, uh, you know, the kind of ways in which we're kind of seeing inequities play out through uh, through kind of exacerbated terms relative to kind of uh, access to certain types of thermal interior, right? And kind of interior air and, and, and virus-free air and ventilated air, and, you know, kind of who gets access and who doesn't. And um, so, so in, in many ways, these questions of adaptation become quite complicated because, I mean, you know, let's say, how can we, uh, how can we uh, negotiate both this question of, let's say, a kind of adaptive comfort system and what we might think of as kind of climate reparations or sort of carbon reparations or some form of recognizing that, um, you know, we in the North have over consumed, obviously, and, and um, mechanical systems that heat and cool buildings have been one of the primary mediums of that overconsumption, right? So, you know, what are the kind of means by which we uh, change, you know, structurally intervene in that process, right? And produce a different sort of built environment that is less dependent upon, uh, upon those fossil fuel systems. And so adaptive comfort is a crucial aspect of that, right? Which is to say that uh, both in its details and, and, and how we can recognize that we have been conditioned for a certain type of living can be conditioned otherwise, right? And we can different types of experiences of thermal interiors but also just for its kind of intervention to say that, you know, it's not about kind of norms and standards, uh, but about, um, you know, kind of flexibility and, and adaptiveness and not resilience in that sense, but sort of capacity to uh, uh, kind of control one's own environment in different ways. And gets us back to the passive house again, unfortunately, but maybe everything circles back. So I think one thing that's then related to this question of comfort is the question of health. 
right? So one of the like discussions that really come up now over the last year is this issue of ventilation. You know, where do you get your air yeah, from? Yeah. How it's been treated? And again, what kind of, of controls would you have as a user? Uh, and so, so I'm wondering, you know, how, how did this debate about health in general, you know, good air, bad air, uh, circulation of, uh, you know, viruses, et cetera, uh, play in architecture? Did it play any role? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I first, I first refer you to the, the, the book of a close friend and colleague, uh, Beatrice Colomina, um, called X-ray architecture, which is is in a sense a story of um, how tuberculosis created modern architecture. I mean that's kind of her mess, and it I mean it, you know it's it's great, it's coherent, it's amazingly uh, uh, you know, the story is well told and well illustrated in interesting ways, um, uh, and and you know and and it's about both the kind of let's say the affect right the kind of sense of cleanliness and the you know the kind of lines and spaces. Um, uh, and then also about the kind of technologies of ventilation, right? And and, and technology systems technologies, and um, which is in part to say again that that I mean to to kind of reiterate that uh, I mean the example that I use in the book is an example when Richard Neutra, who is an Austrian architect, emigrated to California, right? So um, pretty climatically diverse kind of set of experiences, let's say, from Salzburg to LA. Um, uh, I mean both. Amazing in their own ways, right? But quite distinct and 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 very sensitive to designing for these different climates. But then, indeed, Neutra being hired by um, Neutra being hired by um, uh, uh, in effect the U.S. government to design some schools and hospitals in Puerto Rico uh, in the right at the end of World War II in 42, 43, 44, and sort of imagining, yeah, imagining a kind of mode of building. Um, you know, he, he, the subtitle of his book was um, an architecture, I always get it, an architecture of, uh, an architecture of social concern for regions of mild climate. Sorry, I always get a few words mixed up. An architecture of social concern for regions of mild climate, right? So, so this kind of sense that quite literally, and this is theorized by, by Neutra and others, that the sort of project of modern architecture is to leave the kind of urban, leave the metropole, go into, in this case, the Puerto Rican kind of hinterlands and, and produce healthy conditions, right? And use architecture to ventilate spaces and reduce disease and even sort of provide community space and schools and milk dispensaries and gathering spaces and dance floors and other you know, kind of communal systems, a kind of uh, social infrastructure, a climatically sensitive social infrastructure uh, for uh, that then dovetails into all sorts of really compelling theories in the 40s and 50s about a kind of um, uh, almost a kind of a economic isolationism of Puerto Rico as an island and right kind of how can Puerto Rico grow and develop without emulating the kind of you know models of the U.S. right and this was kind of brought up in those discussions too of a of a sort of climatic architecture that's appropriate to a different uh, speed of growth right I mean a different kind of relationship to uh, uh, that the need for housing, the need for uh, other forms of, of shelter. Um, so I think these are again questions that are coming back in really interesting ways. Well, you know, in the broader sense of not only adaptive comfort in terms of uh, you and I and how we might feel comfortable in a given space with however many layers of clothing, but I think also a sense of adaptive comfort and kind of um, I don't know how much are we going to put up with as a society, as a culture. You know, I mean, where's our breaking point? I mean, when does it? I don't know. When when does culture 
lapse? When, 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 when do we start to see these kind of systems no longer being able to reproduce themselves effectively? I think is a, a question that, again, architects need to start asking. How do, when do we design for a different future? Like when is that moment, right? When air conditioning is no longer the foundation. Um, well, in thinking about that, um, you know, that design and the materials that are used then standardly in architecture, um, what struck me about the, the closed building, and I'm thinking about my own buildings and buildings I've, I've worked in, how it's about glass then. I mean, glass becomes the problem in that glass is where you get this heat transfer the, the most, whether you're going mm -hmm. outward because you're yeah, using yeah. it's inside and you lose it or, or it's that the sun shining out from outside comes in. Um, but glass is also what, what's interesting about it is why do we use glass? I mean, in that, well, it, it lets you see the outside, I guess. Um, it brings in some lights, but of course we could do that artificially now. You, you could use more energy right, right, and make light right. yourself. Right. So is there is there any kind of, I guess, movement or thought about glass as the, the right material that should we, you know, that these mm. buildings of the future should be using? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's a great it's it's a great question again, and 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 the broader question of materials, and I'll, I'll again refer you to a, a close colleague of my, Keel Mo, um, who's written about the the Seagram's Tower. He's done a few. He's actually kind of done a series of books now that are sort of material ecologies of the building, um, and his book on the Seagram's Tower that's called Unless, um, which is just I mean it's just masterful. I have to say. I mean it's really amazing how he kind of traces the, you know the sort of copper coating on some of the facade systems to a kind of specific mine in Congo and kind of the, of course, abhorrent extractive practices that were going on there, but really fascinating building, but, but or sorry, fascinating book and building for that matter. But no, glass, I mean, you know, so, so you know, which is to say that glass, um, uh, you know, is an incredibly uh, carbon intensive material, right? And I mean, the whole, you know, part of what we're struggling with in architecture, if we're sort of talking about today, right? Or, or you know, the kind of challenges that, that these histories have led us to, um, uh, steel, glass, and concrete um, are the you know the the, the materials of modernism. Are, are and and to say that is to say that they're also the kind of materials that have been industrialized as part of the apparatus of you know capital expansion of the last hundred years or so. Um, and they are you know as if by design again, like the, the most, uh, you know, carbon intensive materials we can imagine in each case, right? I mean, the top three, I mean, you know, there's, there's uh, aluminum is a strange beast in there, but nonetheless, right? And then steel, glass and concrete. And, and there was a moment when, when, uh, when then Mayor Bill de Blasio uh, uh, of New York was announcing in a, a New York Green New Deal. And he said, uh, you know, and it's horrible how, um, you know, how carbon intensive these steel, glass and concrete uh, skyscrapers are. So we're not gonna build that way anymore in New York. We're gonna, you know, we can't do that anymore. That's not Green New Deal, that's bad. And then the building industry weekly or something, one of the building industry kind of, uh, you know, no other system in place, like that would be the end of the construction of it, right? If we stopped using steel glass and concrete. And, and again, it's not to say, I mean, I always have to counter, there's an amazing amount, uh, amazing set of experiments going on um, these days with um, 
uh, cross-laminated timber and other forms of uh, uh, using wood structurally and other sorts of structural systems, uh, rammed earth structural systems. There's many ways to build in many different ways, but the, you know, the kind of, uh, if you look around your average global city today and see a bunch of cranes, right? They're probably uh, at, you know, topping out in some, at some pace, a steel, glass and concrete structure um, that is going to use a lot of carbon. And they're still doing it today. Those buildings are not built yet. You know, they're not even, you know, right? But some of them just broke out, right? And, and it happens every day. So this is kind of what we're struggling with in terms of kind of materiality in the field is that um, we should build no more buildings, right? I mean, that's what we, that, so the, in some ways the question of glass is just a symptom of our, our more existential question of what do architects do in a world uh, in which uh, and, and, you know, we have answers to that in terms of retrofit and, and all sorts of other uh, systems, ecologies and other things. But um, these are the questions that I think we're asking as a field. All right. So we have reached the end of our time. So uh, yeah. I would just like to, to thank you. So we have with us Daniel Barber talking about his book, Modern Architecture and Climate, Design Before Air Conditioning, out with Princeton University Press. So thank you, Dan, for coming. And thank you to everyone in the audience as well. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the great questions. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Take care, everyone.